Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Arzu Weekly, our weekly podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. My name is Ruben Spolter, and I am the director of Kitab.org, an online learning initiative and the Mission Project, where you can learn Mishnayomit every single day. I'm here with Harab Johnny Solomon. Rab Johnny Solomon is an educator, an author, an editor, a teacher, a writer, and the, uh, and the coordinator and manager of the virtual Beit Midrash. You can reach out to him and speak with him about, uh, about uh, scheduling a, a, a session with him if you want to have a consultation. I also hear somebody wrote, he's a tzaddik nistar, and among the Lamiv Vavnikim, but he wears jeans and a t-shirt and doesn't have a beard to mess with people's minds. Johnny, I don't know who wrote that, but uh, somebody else wrote that. I want who wrote that. We are a we are not a man down. We are a woman down. Molly Brovsky is on assignment today, uh, on secret assignment. So um, Molly, we'll see you next time. Uh, Johnny, today it's, it's we're, we're about a little less than two weeks uh, into Pesach, up to Pesach, and uh, I thought this week I would pick your brain about an issue that's that's. Uh, that comes up every single every single year. This year, a little bit less. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure we will. And uh, it's not the issue of kitiot per se, but it's the issue of what does kitiot mean? What's the implication of kitiot? And I'll, I'll paraphrase it this way. You know, when we sit down for the Seder night, we all know the, the contradiction between what we say and what we really mean. What I mean by that is we know the words kol dichvin yeteve we invite anyone who wants to come to sit and eat at our Pesach. But we know, how, you know, the famous question is that's not true. Because if, we, if you hadn't already been invited, if you hadn't already been included, the Mishnah is explicit, the Halakha is explicit, that if there was a Korban Pesach and we wanted to invite you, you had to be nimna. You had to be, you had to be part of the group, the arranged, the arranged group from beforehand. And if you weren't, you couldn't participate or partake in our Korban Pesach. But even more than that, I was thinking very interestingly, Pesach is a time of family. It's a time where we, instead of joining together with larger groups, we almost separate into our, into our unique families. I mean, it's a family time, but it's not a larger community time. The Seder is not a community event, it's a, as, as it should be. It's a family event, maybe a larger family per se, but it's not something, unless you're stuck in a hotel, can't imagine why anybody would want to do that. But it's not a time of, it's not a melting pot per se. It really is not. And at the, at the same time, there is a phenomenon in Israel. That's why I mentioned the Kittyot phenomenon. It's because in Israel, uh, we are exposed to Kittyot in a much broader way, at least than when I was, when, we were, when I was a rabbi in America. I mean, in America, America, I don't know, you could tell me if this is true in England, but America is predominantly, I mean, the communities I live, that I lived in, and most religious communities are predominantly Ashkenazi communities. So therefore, the foods that were available were predominantly, did not have kitniot, did not include kitniot. It wasn't that difficult. But here, when you come to Israel, pretty much all the food, unless you live in a Haredi area, unless you buy from, you know, uh, from one of those Haredi stores, pretty much all the food is la'ochle kitniot. And you really have to be careful if you want to try to avoid the foods that are not kitniyoted, it's raunchy in your face. And I think that's part of the reason why some people, you know, every year come out and say, oh, how come we can't do kitniyot? We want to have kitniyot, et cetera, et cetera. So to sort, I sort of want to use that as a springboard before we talk about kitniyot to talk about the idea that Israel is this melting pot. And the idea of a minhag that applied to one particular community specifically 
and did not apply to another, is that something that you think should continue moving forward? And, 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 or should we really be moving towards this notion of a larger community, one Eretz Yisrael, one Minhag Eretz Yisrael, as it were, and want to pick have Kitniot, to pick not have Kitniot, but should we be moving towards a place where we act as the same because we live in the same and we need to have a Minhag Makom that's one and the same? So, firstly, I think you asked a very, very interesting question. It's important to note that differences between uh, Sfaradim and Ashkenazim go beyond Kitniot, uh, not just in Pesach, but certainly beyond Pesach. There are different approaches in terms of uh, the sought-after uh, types of meats that necessarily one would uh, consume. There are different approaches towards how certain things are considered to be uh, kashered in terms of uh, whether flavors can be absorbed and thus whether you can use a dishwasher when one after the other for meat and milk, which some Svaradim do and most Ashkenazim do not, meaning there are quite a few variations just in, in the kitchen in terms of how Svaradim and Ashkenazim practice things, or at least some Svaradim and some Ashkenazim. So that that's true, but, the, but it's never as in your face. The only time it's really like explicit is Slichot. I mean, even the nine days, I don't really know who's eating meat and who's not eating meat. I don't really know that. So slichot, I guess, if I see them going to slichot, I, that I see, you know, from the beginning of Elul. But the kidney oil thing is like, really, it's really uh, not in your face. It is. You go to the store and you, you have to, as opposed to the rest of the year when everything in Osherad or everything in, you know, Machsane Ashuk is kosher. I don't have to worry. I don't have to think about it. All of a sudden, when it comes to Pesach, I'm back in Galut because I have to like, wait, can I eat this? And I'm looking at labels and right. you know what I'm saying? So, right. so you, you're correct. Of course, there are differences, but it's not always that overt, not always that explicit, not always that, that you know, in your face, as it were, except for this and Shul. And we'll get to Shul in a second. Right. So I agree that, um, you know, when you live overseas in the States, in Europe, even more so, this need, if you're not just buying in a kosher store, to check ingredients, to look at labels. You don't need to presume that um, in a kosher store you can get what you can get. And when you're in a non-kosher store, you have to be much more um, scrutinizing. And what happens here in the weeks before Pesach is people who don't feel the need to scrutinize that much because they're in Israel and most stores uh, only serve and only um, sell kosher food feel the need to be uh, you know, in the mode of scrutinizing, and it makes them feel uncomfortable, it makes them kind of uh, lose their footing in terms of why am I having to act like I did, whereas for the majority of the year, I don't have to act this way. So this question of how we balance uh, different idiot, different customs, and this idea that we're all living together is obviously, it brings about a tension. As it happens, I have in my hand an article by a, a mutual friend, Rabbi Elias Zorowski, addressing this particular point, which he titled Shevet Achim Gam Yachad. And, you know, raising this issue of if Israel is his melting pot, how come um, the question of Kitniot still draws these distinctions and makes people feel there's more difference than we necessarily experience on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, and I think part and parcel of it is we've been led to believe in this idea of melting pot where all differences merge uh, or, or melt away. But in fact, 
melting pot, which was a vision primarily from the secular leadership at, you know, Ben-Gurion in the years prior to an establishment of the State of Israel, wasn't reflective of unique traditions of different Jews who'd come here. And that though there need to be attempts to try and bring people together, rightly so, there need to be attempts to bring people of different practices together. In fact, most of the Chuvot in the early years after the State of Israel was established could be divided into either things related to war, you know, questions of Agunot and things like that, and also things relating to the State of Israel. How do you have Yishuvim of people of different Ediot coming together? Many Poskim address this question. And in each case, none of them said, oh, just forget about it, we're now meeting at Israel. That was, by the way, a sentiment raised by one particular chief rabbi in a fairly insistent manner. But the majority of Poskim said, we do have different uh, practices and customs. Sometimes you need to be pragmatic, especially in the public setting, uh, and figure out how do we counterbalance the needs of the minority versus the practice of the majority. But to erase tradition is to do disservice to where we've come from. And we're told, you know, a person should know where they come from. They need to know the Masorah. So Masorah that you've passed on or been passed on for many thousands of years through the different journeys your family has taken shouldn't be so quickly rejected merely because it seems to, a little bit more awkward. Nevertheless, of course, greater efforts need to be made that whatever your aidup may be, you feel comfortable in the land you call home. Wait, I want to I sort of unpack this. If I were to ask you in the eyes of, I don't know, Chazal, let's go all the way back. You know, in the times of the Mishnah, when they recited the Haggadah, was there different nuschaot from people who were wherever, I don't know, from Shevet Menashe and Shevet Dan? Or was the assumption that everybody really should say the same thing and do the same thing? The practice should be united. Well, prior to anything being written down, there were different practices for sure. Moreover, the Mishnah, you mentioned the Mishnah, the, the Mishnah of the Manishtana talks about the roasted meat that we have at the Korban Pesach as a remnant of what was done uh, when we had a Beta Mikdash. And there was a shift in terms of that text as we came to realize that, unfortunately... No, uh, my, right, my point, uh, though, is, is um, yes, there were obviously arguments and debates, and there was an idea of minhaga makom, or following your rabbi's opinion. But when it came to... Those were not cultural differences. They were differences in terms of, of, um, of, of halachic practice. But in, in its ideal form... Did we, when we think like of, you know, Mashiach Tidkenu, when, you know, Mashiach is going to come, and I'm not saying we're in Zman Mashiach, but when Mashiach comes, do we expect there to be a Sephardi shul and an Ashkenazic shul? Like, is there going to be a Sephardi section, a Beis Amikdash and an Ashkenazi section? And like, you're going to, the Kohen's going to ask you, you know, you know, where are you from originally? Where were your great-grandparents from? Or do we assume that at some point we're going to figure it out and we're all going to figure out how we're going to do this together? Uh, well, there's a very, there's a very famous uh, Magain Avram that speaks of how when Am Yisrael left Mitzrayim, we're coming to Pesach, right? Each Shevet basically went in their own pathway, representing their own derch, their own minhag. And that there, in fact, the truth is, he talks about 12 Sharim Bashamayim, 12 different gates in heaven related to different tribes. According to the Magen Avram, and it's a, a quasi-mystical uh, insight, which is then picked up on by a whole variety of different poskim and uh, Baalei Machshava, yes, the different Shvatim had different ways of doing things. They each had their own flag. But, as Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky beautifully uh, says, and they each had their own ritual? I'm not saying it's flag. possible. You, you think they mean they each had their own ritual and their own 
interpretation. They had their own identity, but there was something God. very beautiful that Emmett Yaakov says, which there's is one Beit Hamikdash. You know, there, the no, there was no one Beit Hamikdash. The Torah is very clear about that. I mean, when it comes to ritual, Sorry. it would seem that you know everybody comes to the same place. Everybody does the same thing. So he's not going to ask you. The coin's not going to ask you. It's almost it like it reminds me of like when you add like you know one of the things uh, my wife does. She's learning how to become a yoetzer halacha. So that when women call them, they have to ask them, where are you from? What's your, you know, who's your rub? And then I can give you an answer. Does that make sense to you? Like, do you think when you so, go to the coin, so, okay, he's going to ask me you, tell, where Let me you just from? tell this idea of Emma Sleako because I think it's pertinent to this whole question. He says, how come that the Shvatim each had their own tribe, their own identity? He says, yes, they did. But they only were assigned this, or only permitted to kind of celebrate this once we had that center called the Mishkan. Once you have a place where everyone directs their hearts, their minds, and their worship, then can you uh, celebrate your individuality. So there's a balance between the sense of being Amechad, and then you can also say, however, I'm part of a particular unique tribe. Now, in terms of the Beta Mikdash, how does it operate? Yes, of course, everyone came and brought Kolbanot, but nevertheless, uh, a person could have thought slightly different things when they brought it. I didn't tell a person how they should skip, walk, or jump as they made Ali Regel. I didn't tell them what, what song to hum when they did so. True, there was an essential um, universal worship that the Kohanim and Levim performed in the Beta Mikdash, but that was also counterbalanced with the richness of diversity of the people being present, a bit like the different Shvatim. So I, so I agree there, but all my, about my having, point is, you know, we this, all desire, read the same Torah. this desire, Sorry. the desire for a unified ritual, I mean, I, I think it makes sense. I, I think that, I, let, let's put aside the people that say, oh, I, do, I need to eat chickpeas. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying the desire for a sense of unity and a sense of unified ritual, it's a desire to, to establish that we're here for something new, that this is not a continuation of, of the exile, that I'm not just, you know, that the, the community Eben Shmuel or in Yad Binyamin is not just, you know, continuation from, you know, Lodge to Cleveland to London to Yad Binyamin, but rather we're, this is a new thing, a new entity, and it has, it has religious significance. And the religious significance is this is the home of Am Yisrael. And if it's the home of Am Yisrael, then I, why am I fighting with you about what I used to do, or what my grandfather did, or my great-grandfather, you know, what words he said when he was davening? Why is that important? Why is it important whether he did eat chickpeas or didn't eat chickpeas, whether he came from Iraq or, or, or came from, you know, Hungary or wherever? You know, I think that, that deep down, like, even though, like, the notion of maintaining tradition and the importance of ritual is there, I think deep down that desire ha has some place. Because ultimately, do we really okay, think? I'll, I'll give you an do you want your great grandchildren insight. to not eat the same thing as you know what I'm saying? Like, like do you really want them to be still discussing kidney or uh, not well, kidney? Before we get to particulars eating, the question really is: to what extent is our past still important, our present? So there's a there's a very interesting um, observation by uh, was it the by the Ramban um, who speaks about the names of the the months? You know we. We're told that Nisan is the first month, and in the time of the Torah, the months were numbered. They weren't named. Um, and now we've got these names. So where do we get these names from? The Chazal say, Alumi Bavel. They came from Babylon. These were Babylonian names. And the Ramban says, well, why do we have them? You know, why don't we just get rid of them? What, what sanctity is Babylonian names to Jewish people? And he says, it's important to remember. It's important to remember that we came from Bavel. As if to say, the way even which we write the Hebrew date reminds us that we all have a past which isn't where necessarily we find ourselves presently. 
I think we do carry baggage, baggage of our history and our customs. There was lots of different uh, discussions about changing a mifta, you know, pronunciation. Uh, when the state of Israel was established, some were very, very for it. They said everything should change and everyone should be the same. We're going to get to that in a second. Another said one second. Of course, we should be there together, a bit like being around the Mishkan. Of course, we should serve there together. But does that mean we need to create ourselves as robots? Wait, I, does it mean I, we I think we discussed it. I think this came up in a podcast before. So I'll, I want to ask you what you do. I'll ask you, what Miftah do your children use when they daven? Well, the thing is, I'm very confused. Because <laughs> I'm Sephardi, but grew up Ashkenazi. Correct. So, no, I'm saying, let's say, what, what did you do? Fried. Okay, let me ask you, what did you do in England? How did you daven? No, I, I, was built, I was brought up from my schooling and from my home to speak with an Israeli pronunciation, and my kids do as well. However, you know, Wait, that's what your father did. Run, that's what your father did. My father, I mean, my father was born in India. They had a much more Sephardic pronunciation. Yes, interesting. I mean, he had it from Sephardi, less than uh, less than from necessarily the modern state of Israel. He was born in 1950, but still, what's interesting is. When I learn, I learn with a little bit more of an Ashkenazi. When I, you know, sure. when I learn out loud, sure. then I default to how you know the Gemara was heard or whatever it would be. You know, each of us do carry different things. That's the point. When I speak, I speak from how I was brought up, but also from where I live now. When I learn, I also have echoes of my Rav, you know, of who was a, you know of strong Lithuanian stock from my yeshiva and even Kerem Biavne a number of the Rabbanim when they spoke of course it was modern Hebrew when they learnt not all but some certainly defaulted to where they learnt let's say Hebron or whatever it would be so I, I, there, some people would think that's crazy I think it's actually quaint it highlights how all of us are really a tapestry of things that we've experienced and things that our teachers have experienced come back to the issue of, of Kitniot or issue of communal practice so I, I was, what I was thinking about when we were going to have this discussion, I was thinking it's really interesting because there are some practices that have become universal. For example, no one in Israel wears tefillin on Cholomoyed. When I was in America, I wore tefillin on Cholomoyed. That was the Minhag HaMakom. It's pretty prevalent in, uh, in, in Ashkenazi communities. But all of a sudden you come to Israel and bye, see you later. You know, no one wears tefillin. So how do, like, well, that, that doesn't make much sense. You know, you're talking about something that's a positive commandment, um, it's, you know, mitzvah taseh, but nobody does it. And somehow a universal practice has, has been accomplished. Whereas if it comes to, I don't know, you know, not eating corn or, you know, something that's clearly not chametz or, you know, or something like that, all of a sudden we become, you know, very, very vigilant and say, no, this practice, this is something that my grandparents did and their great-great-parents did. And that's part of my community's heritage. So, and, and, and I want to sort of segue from that into the idea of Nusach, which I know you want to talk about. I want you to talk about why, you know, like are, are, are you makpid to say the same Nusach that you grew up with in, in London, which is the same your father? Or are you saying, eh, whatever, it doesn't really matter. And I'll daven, daven where you daven. And, you know, it, why is it so important that we say the exact same liturgy, which shifts all the time, you know, and as, as, as opposed to having a liturgy that's unified and united and, and everyone says the same thing and it's not confusing. You know what words to say? When you get it for Kedusha, you don't worry if you have to say or Keter for reasons I don't really know. I mean, I think the, the question you're really asking is why do we have these unique ways of serving God? 
And I'd say we have unique ways of serving God because there are many different ways to serve no, God. No, no, that's not my question. The question isn't why do we have unique ways of serving God? The question is why do we insist on maintaining the ways that we specifically serve God or performed ritual when from the place that I grew up or from some place sort of that's a facsimile of the place that, you know, like some community ages ago, as opposed to saying, in the end, the differences are not that big. Let's acknowledge they're not that big. So instead of fighting about every little detail, wouldn't the unity be more valuable? Why, why do halakhi... Well, firstly, I don't think there needs to be any fight. Uh, maintaining a practice shouldn't necessarily lead somebody to feel the need to object to my wish to do so. That's point number one. Uh, point number two is, is unity <laughs> on my terms or on your terms? <laughs> That's right? the problem. The majority the of problem. the residents of the state of Israel have shifted during the history of the state of Israel. You know, at some point, uh, uh, the, the considered leadership was, uh, was seen to be more um, led by Ashkenazim <coughs> or then Sfaradim or people more from Europe than people more from other parts of the world. So if you're always going to say that you have to follow the majority, well, the majority changes just as much as almost every election. We've got an election coming up, often leads to different outcomes. So I'm not so convinced that if we say just follow the majority, th that we've got a better solution. We do have uh, traditions, and those traditions are precious, and those traditions do adapt somewhat. But that doesn't necessarily mean that simply because I'm in a different place, presuming that that place doesn't already have its own established minhag, I should not want to remain at least partially loyal to what I bring with me. And Israel really is a country of immigrants, right? Majority of people do not have ancestors here for more than uh, three, maximum four generations back, come from different parts of the world, and each brings something unique to it. I don't think there's fights. I think there's diversity. And I think in that diversity is a richness of the Jewish people. And in every miftah and every prayer, and in that dishka for somebody, and in the keta for somebody else, and in the you know the long yigdal that some people say and the shorter yigdal for others, I don't see problems. I see beauty. I see elegance. I see stories of where people came from. Uh, and I, I think that to be marvelous. The question is a pragmatic one of what do you do when there's difference? That's a, that's where you come down to. And that's why there were lots of chubas in, the, say, the first couple of decades of the state of Israel saying, if the, if 80% of this yeshuv is like this and 20% like that, then certainly when it comes down to public prayer, you should certainly do, default to the to the majority. But I would never tell the minority not to pray then Nusach privately uh, that they grew up on. Still, we know that over periods of time, often that would ebb away and people would then default into what necessarily they're more used to. So then I would like to ask you, to your mind, how important is it for you to maintain, you know, your community minhagim or your family's minhagim? You know, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I'm, but like you said, they're going to sort of wane away, as it were, as our children marry into other communities. I mean, as you said, this is a melting pot. This really is a melting pot in the end. And our children don't just marry, and it's not all the same Nusach and the same Miftah and the same Minagim per se. You know, it could very well be that your daughters, you know, won't be able to eat at your, at your, in your, in your, at your Pesach Seder unless you make them special food because they don't eat kidney oat or, you know, whatever. You, you know, that's a possibility as well. 
first and foremost, um, the the presence of Kitniot shouldn't scare away any person who doesn't have the practice of eating it. The fact that you say it shouldn't doesn't mean it doesn't or won't. Doesn't mean it doesn't or won't. It all depends on the type of person your daughter marries. Well then, but again, (laughs) if we take that view, we could could take it to the nth level and say, uh, if you don't sing this song, then I'm not coming here. Or if you don't wear this clothes, then I don't feel comfortable here. We can make that argument with everything. Uh, if a person doesn't dress in this precise garb, then I don't feel welcome. Well, people or do that all the time with hashkachot. People do that all the time. If you don't to. buy this type of chicken, I can't eat at your table. Happens all the time. Well, it, it happens <laughs> often. And the question really is, what's going on there? Is it a question that the chicken that you would have ordinarily bought is treif? Uh, then, of course, then I suggest you buy kosher. Is it that what the person is being obnoxious? And I suggest they be less obnoxious, right? The is this a real halachic debate uh, or is this a misunderstood halachic debate? Too often we weaponize what we think is halacha, but really it's about me saying, do it my way, otherwise uh, I'm not doing what you want me to do. And and though, of course, there are fundamental machlakot in many different areas, there really are, a lot of times those machlakot are easily resolvable when you actually sit down and learn and you say, so what is really going on here? No, is this I really can't partake in this, or you really can't uh, be a little bit more flexible? You know, to what extent do we show a generosity of spirit? Because precisely because we live amongst neighbors who do things differently to us, and uh, I would say we should all be, you know, sensitive to people who have different practices to ourselves, and we should show both derecherts to them and they to us. And the more we learn about each other, rather than simply insist that other people should be just like me the more we learn to appreciate that there are things that others do which may seem surprising, but certainly can be, you know, quite, quite delightful. In our, in our discussion... educate ourselves. Yeah, in our discussion leading up to this, uh, you had mentioned to me that you had read an article, oh, you had written an article about Rav Gorin and the Nusach of the, of the Haggadah. Is that correct? Yeah, well, this is a fascinating story. I've, I've written an article about it and, and given a couple of talks about it because, first and foremost, I, there was a a period in my life when I was very, very fascinated by Rav Gorin. I still am, but I'm much more critical now. But there, there was a project that he began in the immediate years after the establishment of the State of Israel, which I think raises all these questions. So let's take you back to, to uh, Pesach 1949. The State of Israel has been established, and uh, those fighting the Israeli army are coming together to have their first Pesach Seder as the IDF. And uh, what, what Haggadah they're going to use for the first national, you know, Seders where soldiers of different Ediot are coming together to celebrate Pesach while also trying to defend the state. So what was given out was a secular Haggadah. Interestingly, you know, we talk about different Ediot. There was also a fight then to create a secular Haggadah. In fact, not just A, different Kibbutzim produced their own different versions of the Haggadah, each removing to one extent or another more of the presence of God in the story. I think that's what you, that know, was, you said that Ben-Gurion wanted a melting pot. He didn't want any religion. He wanted the secular religion. That's the melting pot that he wanted. Well, it, the answer is ish. The, these, uh, the, these different Haggadot produced by different kibbutzim occurred with or without him. Wasn't, that wasn't his project necessarily. But they, So these soldiers are coming together for this uh, first Seder in 1949 and the Haggadah that's being distributed is a, is a Chiloni Haggadah. 
And Rav Gorin, who is then the army chief rabbi, sees what's being distributed. And he turns to Ben-Gurion, and Ben-Gurion had appointed him for this role. He said, what on earth is this? And Ben-Gurion said, I have no idea. This is the Haggadah that's been given out for the soldiers, for everyone to use. He says, I'm not having the religious soldiers in, this, uh, in the IDF using a, a secular Haggadah, right? Ben-Gurion says, and he goes on to say, Ben-Gurion, didn't you say you want Israel to be a place where everyone feels comfortable? Well, guess what? A lot of the soldiers here are not going to feel comfortable with this Haggadah. So Ben-Gurion kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, what are you going to do? Uh, can you, you know, can you come up with something better? And from then uh, came a very, very fascinating project where Shlomo Goren said there are different uh, customs. There's the Yemenite customs, Sephardic customs, Ashkenazic customs, each with their own different variations. I want to produce a Haggadah that speaks to everybody. And after a, a bit of effort, he produced what he calls the Haggadah Shel Pesach Nusach Achid. Right, a unified text of the Haggadah, which has expressions of all these different idiot, but creates a level playing field. So if you come, if you're Yemenite or Sfad Ashkenazi, somehow there'll be something in there that speaks to you, but you'll have the same hymn sheet. You'll be singing from the same hymn sheet. And that's what Goran produced, well, Goran produced, sorry, and, uh, and, and, and Ben-Gurion was thrilled. And this became the default Haggadah for soldiers serving in the ADF during Pesach. Is it still today? Is that, the, I mean, of the, is that the one we used? Like, is it close to the one we used today? Or it's just us? I have a copy of it here, by the way, literally. I mean, it, it, there were some prayers remained the same because they, they didn't differ from different uh, idiot. Some he made amendments to. We added lines saying uh, Yemenites start here and Sephardim start here. But the whole point was that everyone had the same book in front of them. That was the... The, the intention of this project, that there wouldn't be people singing, uh, the pe breaking off to do, have different sadarim according to their different traditions. Instead, everyone could sit at the same Seder table and most people would know most of the songs in the same way. That was the whole idea. And that was considered to be a great success, the Nusach Achid Haggadah. And then soon after, Rav Goren said, you know, in, in army bases, I don't want different soldiers of different idiot praying in different places. You know, how is it supposed to be in a melting pot when people come together? And then when it comes to prayer, they, they uh, separate because of their different traditions. And so he produced what he called the Nusach Achid Sidur. He claimed it was a good blend of Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Sfarad. Actually, it's much, much more representative of the Sfarad tradition. And some people liked it, some people slightly less so. Still, it's produced till this day. And then not long afterwards, he said, you know, I'm going to try and produce the Nusach Achid Machso, so that on the high holy days, different people, different soldiers don't separate in different ways. And he argued, if I do this in the army, I'll be able to create a more unified Jewish people even beyond the army. However, the Machso really didn't work because people are so uh, wedded to the songs that they've grown up with and the uh, words that they've been uttering since a child on those special days, they kind of said, this is this is not for us. And people then certainly uh, prayed in their own different groups. So it's so interesting which th people you're referring to. That's really interesting. I mean, soldiers specifically. Meaning, but what kind of soldiers? Meaning, was it this, like... I, traditional to practice. So what's interesting well, is, I so would don't think forget, it's... Majority uh, this, of soldiers that were traditional to no, practice. No, I'm saying, like, no, it's not just he created a machzor, but which soldiers... Meaning, was it was it more Ashkenazic, more Sephardic, 50-50? Which were the soldiers? I, I'll just say why I'm asking. Like, we have a shul, in our shul, that's a mix of all kinds of different people. And throughout the rest of the year, most of the people diving together with us. But come Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the people who are more from the Sephardic communities, they go to the other shul. Because it's like, right. they have to go back to that. 
Whereas us Ashkenazim, right. uh, whatever, you know, we're just singing Karbach tunes anyway. We don't really know the difference. Is that, is that, that's what well, I'm asking well, you. Well, what, well, no, what, he wanted that everybody be basically in the same tent singing the same songs, but he realized that people are so rooted to the memory of tunes that uh, as far as he couldn't conceive losing out on the tunes Zed listened to as a young child by being part of this Nusach Achid project for the Amim Noah. It's really interesting. I'm not, not sure I think it's tunes. I think it's, the same I think thing. it's cadence. I think it's Nusach. I think it's tone. And when I mean Nusach, I don't mean tunes per se. I mean, you know. The Sephardim have a diff- they have a chant in a different way. That there's a whole rhythm of the tefillah that's Sephardic, and you go to an Ashkenazi shul, no matter what it is, it's just it's fundamentally different. And there could be right. more so, of that. So, what, so what do we learn from this? Which is when it comes down to Pesach, where most people are eating and they know a lot of the songs off by heart, and the variations are minor, like whatever. Nobody really cared so much actually about the book because a lot of the Haggadah we kind of know already by heart. When it came down to the Sidur, it, it was a partially successful project. Um, and some people did adopt it, some people didn't. When it came down to Marx, it was a the project was an absolute failure. And what that tells us is we talk about melting pot, but there's a point in which I'm prepared to melt, and there's a point beyond which I'm unprepared to melt. Right. When it's really personal, I'm unprepared to melt. When I don't really care, then I'm prepared to change a little bit. So and I, think, I see this a lot in Israel, yeah. where there are there's a, a certain elasticity in my Jewish practice up to a point because of where I live and what people do. But the, even a piece of elastic has its breaking point. And I'm not prepared to do X or I'm not prepared to do Y. And, and Rav Goren believed that the state of Israel should push people so that it creates a kind of a singular version. So did Ben-Gurion in his own particular way. But he was proven to be wrong. And that's not how people operate. The traditions are important. They're personal. We remember what we grew up around. We remember our grandparents, our grandmothers and grandfathers, and perhaps great-grandparents. And we're not prepared to give that up even for the sake of this claim of the melting pot, namely uh, what was supposed to be Midnight Israel. And so since then, this endeavor of trying to push people to change and create a a singular way of doing things and a recognition that that can only be done up to a point is often tested and it's most particularly tested around around Seder time. What I find is in families who love each other, you figure it out. You know why? Because the desire to be together is more important than a bowl of rice. So that's something interesting. So I, I want to actually take it back. Something very interesting to us. When we came, you know, when I was a rabbi, so people come to, came to us and they looked to us to sort of for, for me to lead the Seder, that was fine because, you know, I, I was raised in a very, I would say, assertive family where we had very specific traditions. We knew, like, the tunes that we had and the way that we did things, you know, and, and we always did it together with very specific families. I'm sure many people have this experience that they have, the Seder they have is with the same family year in and year out, and they do the same tunes that everyone knows. So we, and we did that for years. And when we came to, uh, to Yad Binyamin, we made Aliyah. So one of the years we thought, why do we do this? Why don't we get together with another family, another Olim family, lovely, you know, Anglo family. And it was a disaster. It, it was just a disaster because our children wanted to do the songs that they knew. And their children wanted to do the songs that they knew. And each person, you know, it, it just felt uncomfortable. And when we decided together, you know, that wasn't a good idea. And since then, we've really just been having our Seder, one Seder, 
and whoever comes to us is a guest from out of town or what have you, they want they participate in our Seder. So it's, it's really interesting that that sense of tradition and comfort and connection, like I think we have it not on the Nusach level even, but down to the like the tune level and the, and the food level that it's important. It is important. It really is important to me to sing the frog song that my mother sang to us that I got from my aunt that they learned from, you know, some some record that we found on YouTube, you know, you know that, that we sing Dayenu in the same way. And, you know, I, I think that that is something that's emotionally important and that has significance. And that's something that we pass on, pass over. Right. You know, it's interesting. The whole idea of of defaulting to the host, Chazal say, Kol and so we default to a host in lots of different ways. It's a statement in, in, in Shulchan Aruch as well. But what's funny is, in Medina Israel, we all think we're the Balabais. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to do what you think. I'm the Balabais too. It's my home too. There's something actually wonderful about how we assert our traditions not to try and cause harm and disservice to others. But because we all feel at home. Right, we want to be ourselves here. I think a lot of there was this misunderstanding about this melting pot view, which Ben Gurion spoke about it in a, in a partially paternalistic way. Come and I'll make you all the same. And a lot of our ancestors came, or we came, and we said, "Well, I, I, I don't need to be converted to be a Jew like you think I should be. You know, this is my homeland too, and I." I've been singing about Zion for you know thousands of years, and so has my family, and all of their prayers matter too. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, true. So, so uh, you know, for for my mother's side of the family who came from Poland, who sang towards you know, who prayed towards Israel and prayed about Jerusalem, I bring all of that to the table. And for my father who came, who was born in India, and his grandparents from Iraq, they too, and. All of those people, their traditions deserve having representation here too. And each of us are ambassadors of the journey we've taken. And re re recognizing that is important. Now, just briefly, to go back to your question though about Kitnyot. So how do we deal with this pragmatically? I would say, if, if you wish, you know, with, like I said before, if you want to try and identify conflict, Kitnyot is a really easy thing to create as a point of conflict. I do understand that in many areas it's frustrating that where in the rest of the year you can go to the store and buy anything in here it's not so easy. I get that. I mean the shopping experience is frustrating. But still, though the shopping experience is frustrating, that shouldn't mean that we um, we then use traditions which are precious to us to get frustrated with one another. We should actually look back and say, my ancestors for a thousand years kept this practice. And I bring their nusach up to a point. I bring their tunes up to a point. I bring their stories. Surely I should bring some of them in Hagim. And yes, there needs to be a bit of give. And the question really is, does this need to give? And generally, a minhag that old only changes if there's a, a Sanhedrin that comes along. Or if the majority of Jewish people have somehow made an assertive effort to change. It does seem to be ebbing every year. But still, we are where we are, and all, all of us are multifaceted. And I think Kitniot is one small facet in the history and the journey of of the Jewish people that we are today. Okay. I, 
Thank you for that. Thanks for this wonderful discussion. I really appreciate it. Molly, we miss you. We're trying to, we have no idea what you would have said, but God willing, I'm sure you'll let us know. We'll, we will now uh, take a Pesach break and we'll return with our upcoming episode in a few weeks after Pesach. Uh, the Gemara tells us, uh, Chazal tells us that uh, in Nisan we were redeemed and in Nisan we will be redeemed. So please God, the next time you'll be listening to this, God willing, you'll be listening to it from somewhere in the land of Israel together with us. Uh, I am Ruben Spolter. I want to thank Johnny Solomon and my son for our music. Have a Chag Kasher V'Sameach, everybody. Bye now.